Yat A, my relatives. Good morning. This is Mark Charles. It is uh, Friday. It is April 7th, and this is Good Friday. And I wanted to take some time this whole week. I've been thinking about and reflecting on Good Friday and the importance of lament. And I want to make sure I take some time to talk about that and discuss some of that with you over my second cup of coffee. Before I begin, I want to do as I always do, which is acknowledge I'm speaking to you from what's now called Washington, D.C., the land of the Piscataway. I honor the Piscataway as the host of the lands where I'm living. I thank the Piscataway for their stewardship of these lands. And I just remind myself and humbly state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. Before I get into my discussion on Good Friday, and um, reflection on lament, I have to talk about what's going on in our country right now because it is a little overwhelming. If you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you'll notice that this morning, or last night actually, it was late last night, just before I went to bed, I put out a tweet and an Instagram post, and um, I will show you what I put up. But I posted this, white people are not superior. And I, I did this, I repeated it, what, seven, ten times, eight times, nine times. And as you know, I, I do this frequently, right? I, I Several times a year, I tweet out and post on my social media, white people are not superior. And I do it because... There's not only the challenge we face as a nation where people of color and other marginalized people are seen as inferior, but the underlying belief behind all that is that while we may be considered less than human, white people are considered more than human. They're considered superior. Um, and so if we're going to ever have a conversation as peers, yes, we have to lift up people from the margins. We also have to lower the people from the top because where white people ex exist, where they reside, is not sustainable. And so we need to constantly remind ourselves and remind them that white people are not superior. And so I, I put that out there and I say that. And I felt the need to do that yesterday. And I actually followed that tweet up with a, a, a response online. And I said, I know the statement is obvious to many people, but after the actions of the Tennessee legislature on Thursday, I thought our nation needed another reminder. So if you've been following what's been going on in Tennessee, and I'm going to um, post a few articles here. One is just, the, well, the first is, and I talked about this last week, was the horrific shooting that took place um, in that school in Tennessee. And then um, after that, about a week after that, or even a little less than a week, there was uh, a, a protest at the, the Capitol in, in Tennessee. And three members of, of the legislature participated in the protest two black men and a white woman. And they were protesting inside the legislature. And they were called out for breaking decorum. They were called out for talking out of turn. They were called out for bringing that chaos into that building. Um, and yet they were literally, they were, they were advocating for the voice of thousands of people who weren't, don't even have the right to vote, right? These were a lot of students who were there. There was a mass walkout of students 
throughout Tennessee walking out saying, we want to feel safe in our in our places of education. We want to feel safe in our school buildings. And these these gun laws are not letting us feel safe. And so they were protesting. And three of the members of the legislature participated in the protests and they were immediately denounced. They were, they were, um, I think they were removed from the building. And then on Thursday, they held a vote to expel them. Now there have been two other cases of, of, uh, members of the legislature, Congress people from Tennessee being expelled. And it's only been after they were convicted of felonies, of like major crimes, that they were removed from their position. And so the fact that these three were even, there was even a vote going on to expel them when they were protesting. And yes, they were breaking decorum. But again, it, it was fairly unprecedented and it was clearly seen as a partisan move by the GOP. Um, and uh, what happened yesterday is two of the members, two of the black men were voted to be expelled and the 60 year old white woman was not. She did not get expelled. And immediately after it happened, she was asked, and this was this is actually a quote in the in the article I just put out there by NPR. She was asked about why she thought she wasn't expelled and the other two were, and she said, "Well, I think it might be because of the color of my skin." And clearly, that's what was going on. And she made it even more clear later in a tweet. Um, our, this is on Twitter, but it was an interview she gave on CNN. Her name is Representative Gloria Johnson, and um, this is a this is a, a video of her interview on CNN. And she was asked why she survived while two of her colleagues were expelled from the Tennessee House, and she said, "Well, I think it's pretty clear. I'm a six year old white woman, and they are two young black men." And right, so clearly. Uh, it's obvious to everybody, probably except the white legislators who voted for this. I'm sure they're they're um, explaining it away in their minds somehow. Um, but uh, it's very clear to the rest of the country and even the rest of the world what they're doing, um, which is not only racist but white supremacist. And so I that's why I tweeted out this morning this tweet where I said white people are not superior over and over and over again because we have to confront this lie and this lie that gets reinforced over and over and over and over again, which is not just that people of color are inferior and less than human, but it's that white people are superior and more than human and they exist in some elevated plane and that lie has to be confronted. And so I confronted it this morning. And again, it's just a tweet, but it's out there. And uh, I'm sure it's actually generating a little bit of conversation, but I, I wanted just to make you aware of what's going on there. And uh, yes, it, it, it is, it is a, the way a lot of people are framing it is this is an attack on democracy 
and I don't deny our democracy is absolutely being attacked. But we have to understand what's going on beneath the scenes and at a more foundational level. It's not just democracy is being attacked. Democracy is being attacked because the position of whiteness is feeling threatened. And so, right, our nation is all for having people vote and giving access to the ballot box as long as it's white landowning men who are voting. But the minute we start allowing women and people of color and giving them access to the ballot box, now this threatens whiteness because right, our foundations were written to protect the white landowning male. And so as whiteness feels more and more threatened, I can almost promise you these attacks and these actions will become more and more and more brazen. And we're unfortunately probably only beginning to see the beginning of this because this thing is deeply, deeply rooted in our nation's unresolved history, not just of racism, but of white supremacy. And if we don't address it there, we're not going to fix it. We're not going to deal with the deep pain and, and, and wounding we have as a nation that doesn't just affect people of color. But again, I talk about frequently the trauma of white America and what this history has done to our white citizens of this country. So anyway, that's why I did that. I also wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on with the Vatican. And as you know, it was a week ago Thursday um, that the Vatican, seemingly out of the blue, repudiated the doctrine of discovery. And I, I put this post, I actually did a live stream that day. I'm giving a link to that. It's on my YouTube channel. It's been one of my more popular videos of the past several months. Um, and it's been generating a fair amount of good dialogue. Uh, it was a lot of raw thoughts, right? I didn't have a lot of time to think through everything. I spent some time reflecting on it. I read through the, re the repudiation by the Vatican and I gave some comments. Um, since then, and you know, one of the challenges with this is that uh, it's fascinating, right? Because while this has been covered, it has not been covered well. And I've gotten several interviews over the past, uh, requests for interviews over the past several days since this happened, primarily from um, more marginalized or more non-mainstream, not mainstream, but not national news services, right? So all the major news services did a story on this. AP, um, NPR, uh, all of the major news, most of the major news outlets did a story on this, but they didn't interview native leaders and especially native experts who have been talking about the doctrine of discovery for years, right? I saw the only interviews I saw with actual native people in this country who were, who were talking about this came from the same articles that interviewed me, which was the national Catholic reporter, um, Indian Z, um, uh, native news online and uh, religious religion news net news service. And I have not seen an extensive, the New York Times did interview uh, Robert Miller for their story 
Um, but I have not seen a widespread inclusion of these other voices. And this isn't just about me, right? There's a lot of brilliant people out there who are writing about the doctrine of discovery, right? Stephen Newcomb has written extensively about it. Sarah Augustine has written books about it. Robert Miller has written many, many books about these things. And there's a lot of people working to bring these things to the forefront. And I'm disappointed that mainstream media is not tapping into these voices. At least not that I can see very clearly. If I'm missing some, please let me know. I'd be happy to acknowledge them. But I have not seen it in the articles I've read and the, the stories that I've done. And they've all, so all these major news outlets have done at least one story on the Doctrine of Discovery being repudiated. But they don't go in depth. And they don't bring a very good representation, especially here in the United States, of the indigenous peoples who have been working against this um, doctrine for so long. But I do want to share some of some of the stories that are out there. And so I'll just put a few of them into the chat now. Um, this this one by Religious News Services um, came out most recently. This one came out. It was either yesterday or um, early late Wednesday night. Here is another story. This was one of the first ones to come out that I saw. Um, it was uh, Native News Online and they did some stories on it. Um, this one came out on Sunday. This op-ed came out. Um, there was another really good story by the National Catholic Reporter. I encourage you to read this one. Um, they're all good, and they all interview um, some good voices, and I, I want to make sure that you, you read these. Um, this one, I thought, did a very good job of incorporating a lot of good voices um, throughout the article, uh, and so I encourage you to read that one. And then Indian Z interviewed me fairly extensively. I had probably my longest interview with Indian Z, and they did a whole story where they did quote a few other sources, but they they tended to, they seemed to um, latch on to a lot of things I was talking about. And so they quoted me pretty much throughout this article. They also included a link to my YouTube video and um, uh, gave some references to some other work I've done, including the book I've written. So I, I invite you to read that too. And, and I think... Um, Stephen Newcomb actually had a quote in the National Catholic Reporter article where he said one of the benefits of what's going on is it's raising this topic a little bit, right? And it is. It's raising a little bit. I've been following kind of the trends and, you know, Doctrine of Discovery is trending a little bit more on social media. Um, videos and articles about the Doctrine of Discovery are getting more views and more searches. It's not astronomical, like they're not going viral, but they are elevating a little bit. And that's not a bad thing. And most everyone agrees, right, this repudiation does not go near far enough. Um, it's a very, very weak repudiation. In fact, the quote that I've been giving to all of these news agencies um, and that I've been using for a long time, I'm actually going to put it into the chat here. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'll tell you what I'm going to be working on next. But uh, the quote that I've been giving, one of the quotes I've been giving is, in what could have been a groundbreaking and historic repudiation of the Doctrine of Discovery, the Vatican instead released a series of nine political statements that sought to rewrite history, shield the Catholic Church from legal liability, and shift the blame for the Doctrine of Discovery to governmental and colonial powers. And that's what they were doing, right? And so there is, a, there is some, if you look closely at what the Doctrine of Discovery says and then what the Catholic Church said in their repudiation, 
as well as if you look at what they believe, the Catholic Church believes and teaches, and what they put in their repudiation, there is absolute, not only a shifting of blame and a, a limiting of liability, but there is blatant hypocrisy. I don't have time to go into all of this right now. I'm actually working on an article that I'm hoping to publish over the weekend, and I'm hoping that this will be the first of maybe three or four op-eds that I'll write over the next month talking about this in a more extensive and in-depth level. But as I point out in my video, right, there's nine statements. And six of those statements, starting with the first four and, and going to the, the last two or three, talk about how great the Catholic Church is doing and all the wonderful things it's doing and the way it's educating itself and it's learning these things and it has this value for all people and it it's, it's done all this work and sacrifice all these things for native peoples. And what's really fascinating about that is when you read the Catholic Church's guidelines on confession and what you're supposed to do and the mentality you're supposed to bring into your confession is not first establish in yourself that you're a good person and you've done these wonderful things and this was a mere slight blemish, right? It's no, reflect on the depth of what you've done and the brokenness that it's caused and take ownership of it. It even talks about there's a need for penance. This is in the Catholic Church. I'm not saying I'm teaching this. This is what they teach. So there has to be some sort of almost consequence or, or work to make things right. This is what the Catholic Church teaches on confession. And yet their entire nine statements of repudiation focus the bulk of them on how great the Catholic Church is, the wonderful things it's done throughout its history, and how its writings, which were not ever meant to be the teachings of the Church, were co-opted and misused by governmental and colonial powers. Again, Hypocrisy. Blatant, straight-up hypocrisy. And so I'm going to, I'm working on one article right now, which is going to kind of be an introduction article, and it's just going to be my reaction and the way I read these nine statements and why I'm so hesitant to believe the Catholic Church when it says even the, 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 the words of repudiation that it does say, why I'm so hesitant to, to trust them. And then I will, I'm hoping to write two or three more op-eds after that, maybe even once a week for the next month, where I will look more at the challenges, not just the Catholic Church, but most of Western institutional Christianity faces in trying to be a church, which is called to sacrifice itself and walk humbly when it is an institution which is primarily concerned about preserving itself and perpetuating itself. And those two are go in direct contrast with each other, where the church, the institution of the church, cannot admit wrong. Why? Because when it admits wrong, it's admitting legal liability. And legal liability is detrimental to the existence of an institution.
And so the institution of the church seeks to separate itself from its own teachings and the, its own policies and the things it's asked its members to do on its behalf. And then it places the blame on the members for saying we don't condone those things, even though the church wrote them for the purposes which which they were being used. Anyway, we'll go into all of that. So, yeah, there's this. I just wanted to share some of those articles with you and share some of the stories. But those are some things that um, I've been thinking about and I felt like I had to at least talk about before we get into this discussion on Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday, and the discipline of lament. I started reflecting on Holy Week, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday, and the week leading up to it years ago when I was living back on the reservation. And like I do in so many of my teachings, I recognize, right, the, 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 the teaching, the story we have around these events are not reflective of what's actually written in the scriptures. Right? And as Sungshan, my co-author, so beautifully points out in his book, Prophetic Lament, the church is absolutely anemic at lament. Right? It's been built on this doctrine of discovery and this notion of empire and colonialism, and it, it, it needs to voice its triumphalism, its exceptionalism. Right? I, I point out it's nearly impossible to lament when you believe in the myth of your own exceptionalism. And so the, the church is terrified of lament, just like the church is terrified of legal liability. Because it's an institution, and lament can actually break down the institution. And so lament is contrary to the existence and the perpetuation and the growth of the institution. Because the institution, being legally liable as an established institution, cannot lament what it's done because that opened itself up to liability. And so Western Christianity, which is highly, highly, highly institutionalized, is absolutely pathetic at the spiritual discipline of lament. And not only is the institution pathetic, the, the members, the congregants of the church, because they also are existing on this myth of their own exceptionalism. And so the congregants are also incredibly anemic and pathetic at the practice of lament. And we see this most clearly at Easter. At Easter, right? Where, where we have probably the most lamentable day, lamentable day in the entire Christian calendar, which is God on earth was crucified. Right? And then it's three days until he rises again. But the church can't even last those three days, right? They can't even walk out of a Good Friday service without saying, well, Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. I just got an email from some Christian organization today. The headline of the, of the email, which was about Good Friday, the title of the email said, Sunday's coming. <laughs> you can't even talk about this stuff without clinging to some narrative of 
exceptionalism. We can't stay and lament. It's absolutely impossible for the church. And so the narrative that's come out around Easter is that Easter was this incredibly joyous, right? People were just waiting for this morning to come, and they were so grateful that this morning came, and they went to the tomb, and they saw Jesus, and they went out and celebrated and exclaimed things, and were going crazy about all this stuff. And that, that's the narrative that comes out. But I'm gonna, I, I shared this article on my, on my social media these past few days, and I'm going to share this one again. As we go through this, I actually want to read them. They're not very long. The first one I want to talk about today, I wrote this several years ago. It's called Easter Morning. An empty tomb apparently is not enough. We tend to think of Easter morning as a joyful, blessed morning as Mary and the other women visit the tomb, discover it is empty, and run to tell the disciples the good news. We imagine scenes of celebration and shouts of joy as his followers proclaim, He is risen. We have been lured into thinking that it was only Thomas who was the classic example of doubt and unbelief regarding the news of the resurrection when he said, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. But if we read the resurrection story in which, in each of the four Gospels, we find that fear, doubt, and unbelief was pretty much the typical response of everyone, including those who saw the empty tomb and spoke to the angels. In the Gospel of John, we are told that after seeing the empty tomb, the strips of linen and the folded up cloth, John believed. But this belief was not that Jesus had risen from the dead, but rather he believed the report of the women who said they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So naturally, he and the other disciples went home. This is John 29 through 10. Even Mary, who saw the empty tomb and spoke to the angels, did not believe that Jesus had risen. For she stayed behind weeping after the disciples had left. And when asked by an angel why she was crying, she said, They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. In Matthew 28, 8-10, the women run away from the empty tomb, afraid and with some joy, until Jesus appears to them and tells them, Do not be afraid, but go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, where they will see me. In Luke 24, verses 11-12, it is reported that the women did, not, did return to tell the disciples, but they did not believe the women, because their words seemed like nonsense. Peter did go to the empty tomb and saw the strips of linen, but he merely went away, wondering to himself, what had happened. And in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 8, even after seeing the empty tomb and speaking to the angels, we are told that trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the empty tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. According to all four Gospel accounts, Easter morning was not filled with triumph and blessing. Instead, it was marked with fear, doubt, and unbelief. We are dealing in these stories with people who had no expectation that Jesus was going to rise again. No expectation this was going to happen. Even when they saw it, even when they saw the empty tomb, they did not believe this had happened. Instead, what they saw was met with their own fear, their own doubt, and their own unbelief. 
So because of that, we have to think about Holy Saturday. I'm going to put this reflection up too. This here. This is about Holy Saturday. 2,000 years ago, we comfort ourselves on Holy Saturday and reminder, remind ourselves that Sunday is coming. But we forget the disciples did not have that hope. Jesus tried to tell them, but they did not believe. They could not comprehend it. So imagine, you just watched your master, the person you were convinced was the Messiah, die a horrific death on a Roman cross. You saw the religious leaders and the people publicly reject him. You observed his beating. You followed his trail of blood out of the city. You heard the gasps for breath. You read his lips as he questioned why even his own father forsook him. And then you watched the unthinkable. His body went limp and he cried out and gave up his spirit and died. The soldiers pierced his side. His blood drained out and all hope was lost. Still numb, maybe you helped remove his body from the cross. You laid it in a tomb and you watched the stone being rolled in front of it. And then you saw it heal, sealed. It was over. The next morning must have been a daze. For the past three years, you followed this man around. You walked with him, laughed with him, fed thousands of hungry people with him. You survived storms together. You even healed the sick and raised people from the dead with him. But now the cross was empty and the tomb was occupied. And all you can think about is the way you ran away when the soldiers came. Even after you looked him in the eye and swore you would never do such a thing. What a horrible day Saturday must have been. Not only did Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, die, but he died alone because you abandoned him. On a day like that, there's only one spiritual discipline you can possibly cling to, only one holy practice that you could possibly engage in. It's what do you do on the day that the cross is empty and the tomb is sealed? You weep, you mourn, and you lament. Friday has happened and Sunday may be coming. But if we skip the horrific pain, the absolute confusion, and the utter despair of that first Saturday must have been, we devalue them both. And I want to actually add some to this. I was reflecting about that, about this this morning. Which is not only did disciples, I would imagine, have to deal with the fact that they abandoned Jesus. But I have to imagine they were wrestling with the fact, the thought, that Jesus abandoned them. Right? Peter said himself, you don't have to die. You can stop this. When the soldiers came, he took out a sword. He was ready to fight to his death to save Jesus. It was Jesus, not the soldiers, who stopped him. It was Jesus who rebuked him, not the soldiers. Jesus wasn't overpowered and led to the cross. He went willingly. I, you, I have to believe. Yes, the disciples 
probably wrestled with the fact that they abandoned Jesus and they let him die alone. But they also probably had to feel that he abandoned them. And now what were they going to do? They gave up three years of their life to follow him around. And again, they had no hope Sunday was coming. Right? They had no hope for that. This is why they were so confused and doubtful when Easter actually happened. They must have felt abandoned by God on that day. And this is where lament is so unbelievably necessary. Lament is not repentance. Lament is not fixing things. Lament is not turning around and doing something different. Lament is sitting in the brokenness and waiting for your creator to meet you. Allowing the depth of what's gone wrong. Including the way you may even feel slighted by your God. I, I, I say this a lot when I teach, right? If When the people of God lament, and this isn't just in the scriptures, but this is from experience. When we lament, God always, always, always shows up. God does not come quickly. In fact, God seems to like staying longer than we are comfortable, leaving us in lament longer than we are comfortable with. But God does show up. And if we don't learn how to lament in that time, because when God shows up, the way out is 10 times harder than what we ever expected. Much more difficult. Much more difficult. And if we're not ready, because if we're not convinced of the depth of the brokenness, we're not going to have the strength to follow. And so when we refuse to lament, when we refuse to sit in the brokenness, when we, 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 we cling to a myth of our own exceptionalism and a triumphant narrative, Instead of allowing ourselves to feel the things, and right, and and this is the problem because so often, and I know this because I went to Christian school for twelve years, right? Which is don't entertain your doubts, don't entertain your fears, and that is crappy advice, right? It's horrible advice. If you don't wrestle with your doubts, if you don't wrestle with your fears, if you're not honest about them and learn how to incorporate them and understand them in the midst of your faith, your faith eventually will evaporate. Right? This is, this is why the church in America has such an unbelievable time. This is why white evangelicals, right? They're fighting so unbelievably hard to keep their guns. And why they've connected it to their faith. Because they've actually lost hope that God is on their side and that God is going to help them. They've, they've lost that hope. And their hope is now in their Christian empire, in their institutions, and in their guns. 
And so this is why days after a horrific shooting in a school where children lost their lives, our government passes bills opening up access for easier to buy guns. Because that's where their hope actually is. Their hope, even though they may go to church and say they're Christian, their hope is not in God. I promise you that. Their hope is in their guns. Their hope is in their Christian empire. Their hope is in their institution. Because they've never learned how to lament. They've never learned how to wrestle with their fears and deal with their doubts and be honest about what they're feeling. And people of color, because of our history, we are better at lament. Have more experience with it. Have done it. Have survived because of it. And some white people too. And so when those white people then protest and break decorum and say, we have to talk about this. We have to wrestle with this. We have to give voice to these voices outside who are demanding this type of change. These white evangelicals who have long ago lost their faith in God and only have it in their empire. Return to their roots of white supremacy and seek to silence those voices by expelling the people of color. What happened in Tennessee, my brothers and sisters, is not just the GOP. It's not. If you think it is, turn off Fox News, or turn turn off CNN. Turn off MSNBC. If you think this is just a GOP problem, you have your clueless about our nation's history or about the way that the Democrats advocate for many of these same things just in a different way. This is so not a partisan problem. This is the fact that our nation has never learned how to deal with the racism the sexism and the white supremacy, the doctrine of discovery it was founded upon. About the way this nation that calls itself a Christian empire actually doesn't even begin to know and understand who Christ is and only knows Caesar. And that's where its faith lies. Because it's never learned how to lament, the Christian church, not the Christian church, the Christian empire has become one of the most violent, deadly, oppressive institutions in the world. Because it doesn't have a clue how to lament. It's so terrified to wrestle with its own doubts and deal with its own fears. And read its own scriptures. This is why lament is so important, my brothers and sisters. 
this is why it's so important. So if you follow the Christian faith tradition, I implore you to not tell yourself today or tomorrow that Sunday's coming. Don't tell yourself that. Don't allow yourself to ease your uncertainty or your questions or your fears by saying, if I can just make it a Sunday. The disciples didn't have that. For two days, they were living in their doubt. They were living in their fears. They were in the midst of it. But I'm convinced that's what gave them the strength. When they finally did see, that gave them the strength to go on to become the people they were after Jesus left the world. Right? And this is who I preach, right? This is where Acts 10, Peter, right? Because he was able to lament and wrestle with his fears and sit in that depth for these two or three days, even longer, because he was still out fishing later. <laughs> if you read the stories. But that's what when he saw the Spirit came to him in Acts 10 and said, Hey, we're going to do something here. We're going to do something that's never been done. Something even Jesus didn't do. We're going to we're going to welcome in uncircumcised Gentiles into this family of faith that we have here. We're not going to require them to circumcise themselves to eat kosher. We're not going to require them to to become Jewish. The Holy Spirit's going to pour out on them as they are. And Peter ran with it. He did it. He went with it. I can promise you, I can promise you, if he did not lament, if he hadn't gone through what he had gone through, I don't think he would have done it. So anyway, these are the things I want to encourage you in my relatives, do not allow the church, which is terrified of lament, because lament is a threat to the institution. And the church is an institution. The Western church is an institution. It's, an, it's a Christian empire. It embraces that fact. So don't let your church lie to you today. Don't allow it to give you a false hope in the myth of a presumed exceptionalism that does not exist. I actually spent the morning this morning doing something I hadn't done in a long time, several months probably, which is I sat and laid out my frustrations that I talk about frequently. And I'm constantly walking through them. But right, I, I go back to God and I'm like, God, it's been 2,000 years. It's been 2,000 years and I have very, very, very few stories of you 
standing up boldly for black and brown people who aren't Jewish. Right? I have this massive book called the Bible that talks about your love and your the things you do bending over backwards for the Jewish people. I have literally 1,600 years of church history of Western Europeans being able to act with impunity. I have precious few stories and nothing with any longevity to it of you standing up boldly and globally for black and brown people who aren't Jewish. And I lament that, right? This is this is my fear, this is my doubt, this is my and I'm I'm like acknowledging it to God. I don't have the answer. I don't have the answer. I continue to press forward because I'm committed to seeing this change happen. I continue to press forward against the doctrine of discovery. I continue to press forward to build our nation into a place where we the people actually means all the people. I continue to press forward to rebuke the church, to correct its false teachings. But I also, and times do honestly go to God and literally say, where are you? I feel alone. And I would imagine that's exactly how the disciples felt on Saturday. I imagine that's how they felt. Because yes, they were convinced Peter directly told Jesus, you don't have to die. He pulled out a sword to protect him. He was convinced this did not need to happen, and he had no hope that Jesus was going to come back. So he must have felt like crap on Saturday. So lament is a serious thing, my rel my relatives. It's a it's a necessary spiritual discipline. And if we don't learn how to do it, it will have it does have, we see this in white America all the time, devastating consequences. Devastating consequences, right? As Christian empire has put more and more of its trust in its empire and its guns, it has grown to some of the most powerful empires in the world, including the United States, most of Europe, which colonized much of the world in the name of God. Anyway, my relatives, those are my thoughts. I hope they're helpful. I appreciate you taking some time to let me ponder these things with you for a few moments today. And uh, 
yeah, I hope you're able to think through some of these things and reflect on the importance of this day. It's Good Friday. But there's not much that actually feels good about it. If you were honest. And if we're reading the scriptures correctly. So. Anyway. Let me look through some of the comments here. Appreciate everyone's comments. There's a lot to go in through here. I don't have time to reflect on a whole lot of them, but yeah, anyway. My relatives walk in beauty. And may we all learn how to walk in beauty together. Shahat and Hakonet.